Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And happy Monday. Welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History. It's a little summer surprise. I told you there'd be one or two of these. My name is Brett Small. Thanks for joining us. As always, just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday. Not Thursday anymore, folks. Monday, free of charge. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. As well as don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter at Snapshots In and on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History. I know, I know. Long time no talk. Congrats to the St. Louis Blues. I haven't done an episode since right before the Stanley Cup playoffs ended. But fear not, we're coming back for season two during the first week of October. I spent the last few months lining some guests up and doing a few interviews, but really I've actually laid back quite a bit and took some time off and relaxed. But it's made me miss the podcast. It's made me miss interacting with all of you on social media and on Twitter. So I'm excited to say we're getting stuff lined up for the upcoming season and campaign. But As I said, I would drop a few surprises, so when this opportunity came up, I thought everybody would enjoy it. Before we get started, however, just a few news and notes about the podcast before we kick off the interview with Steve Seftel. If you heard in the beginning, I did say every single Monday, we're not going to be doing Monday and Thursday anymore. I'm just going to drop every single interview in one part on Mondays. And I'm doing this just because I talked to a lot of you, and most of you said that you really preferred it all come out on one day. Sometimes you got busy during the week and would forget to listen on Thursday or something like that. It also helps me a little bit. That way I only have one show to edit a week and I can focus on doing more interviews for you guys, which seems like everybody enjoys because we all know that nobody wants to listen to me. Anyways, uh, the interview with Steve Seftel. Steve's awesome. Steve is the exact type of person I wanted to interview when I started this show. He's a guy that a lot of people don't know his story. I didn't know his story. I knew he was part of the Washington Capitals organization. He played four games for him. I remember seeing his name a long time ago. But the majority of his career was in the American Hockey League and the OHL, and nobody's really told his story. And Steve actually kind of is at a point in his life where I think he wanted to kind of share his story with people. And his story is so much more than hockey. He's battled depression and anxiety throughout his entire life. And for the first time, he's dealing with it. And he wrote this book about his career and it's pretty interesting. It's pretty fascinating. And I think he did it because he wants to help others. So I reached out to Steve. I said, Steve, I'd love to have you on the podcast. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to just hear who you are. And he said, sure, why not? We got a time set up. And unlike most interviews on the show where we really focus on one period of time, for this, we kind of looked at Steve's entire career. And we did this just because I think I want to get his story out there. And then once the fall comes, we'll probably do another interview with him covering one of his American Hockey League seasons, maybe in Baltimore or, or maybe one of his OHL seasons. I'm sure we'll definitely have him back on. But for now, I wanted to give him the opportunity to plug his book, which, by the way, is called Shattered Ice and available on Amazon. Let's go ahead and cut to the interview. Here's my conversation with Steve Seftel. Let's start at the beginning. Can you fill me in kind of a little bit of background on yourself? Sure. I grew up in Kitchener, Ontario, and I played all my minor hockey there. So I was a graduate of Kitchener Minor Hockey. I was drafted in the third round, 31st overall by the Kingston Canadians in 1985. Very proud moment. Um, My hometown of Kitchener is home to the Kitchener Rangers. So I grew up watching the Rangers and I watched 
Brian Bellows, Scott Stevens, and Al McKinnis win the Memorial Cup in 1982. So a lot of Kitchener kids dream of one day playing in the OHL because it is the biggest game in town for the, the local kids. And then the NHL is just the ultimate dream. But So to get drafted to the OHL was a, certainly a proud moment for me. I spent three years there in Kingston. When you finally get to the OHL, how did it differ from your minor hockey? I mean, what was the transition like for you? Well, it was tough. The tough part was moving away from home. I think when you're 17 years old, some kids are doing it at 16. I was 17. Um, For me, Kingston was about four hours east of my home. So it wasn't a place that I could see my parents every other weekend. Like when I left, it was just me and my billets and the team. And uh, it's a big adjustment because you're with a new family. You're with, you're at a new school, you've got new teammates. So you're at the same time, you're trying to do well in school. You're trying to do well on the ice. And it's a lot of pressure for uh, young teenage kids and not everybody handles it well. And was there anybody on the team that, that you became close with that kind of helped you kind of get through those times? Cause you're right. You're young you're trying to figure things out. And at least now we have the internet, we have FaceTime. You didn't have any of that to really keep in touch with home. So I imagine it was kind of a stressful time, but did anybody help you out? Absolutely. Uh, the coach of the Kingston Canadians was Fred O'Donnell, and uh, he was an ex-Boston Bruin. Very nice man and a uh, very good hockey coach. So yeah, I always have the, the coaching staff to lean on. We had uh, assistant coaches, Dale Sandals and Sean Babcock. I was fortunate I. Uh, Scott Pearson, who's a former Toronto Maple Leafs first rounder, he we were rookies together and we lived on the same street and that helped. And then I had uh, in the neighborhood, our ride then was uh, Brian Verbeek, who's the brother of Pat Verbeek. So the three of us spent a lot of time together. We lived in the same neighborhood and uh, so going to and from the rink, you certainly lean on your teammates when you're a rookie in that league. Pearson, of course, would go on to play for Toronto, the Quebec Nordiques. But your junior team, just looking at Hockey DB, you guys had some pretty talented characters on that team. Who do you think, is there anybody that sticks out to you for skill-wise that was on that team that you're like, wow, when I saw that guy, he was unbelievable? Well, as far as pure skill goes, it was uh, another fellow rookie my first year. It was Brian Fogarty, defenseman, just an incredibly skilled hockey player. Uh, he broke Bobby Orr's junior OHL, OHL record and Dennis Potvin's OHL record for uh, goals and points. So, like, just a, a phenomenal talent. And uh, he was the first overall pick in the 1985 OHL draft, the same year I was drafted. Uh, from from that, uh, Jeff Chicken, my rookie year, ex-Flyer and Penguin, was uh, our captain, a real uh, respected leader in the dressing room and a hardworking individual had a good career. And then uh, I would say a couple forwards, Scott Metcalf, who played uh, on team Canada at the infamous punch up in Pia Steine with the Russians and uh, Herb Raglan, another high pick of the St. Louis blues. Sure. You mentioned Brian Fogarty and I'd like to talk about Brian. We've talked about him to some other players in previous episodes and Brian, from what I understand, and I never saw him play was pound for pound one of the best when it came to skating and and a lot of people heralded him as the next Bobby Orr and he ended up going first I think he went ninth overall in the first round of the NHL draft I want to say in sometime in the late 80s it was 87 87. he was drafted 87 by the Nordiques ninth overall it was the year after me that I was drafted in 86 and he went the next year 
And and I, I want to touch on your draft, but before we kind of do, one of the things that you talk about in your book is, you know, you had a little bit of a struggle with some anxiety and depression, and Brian had some issues later on. Did you, Do you recall seeing those early on? And, and do you remember seeing, wondering, hey, I, I wonder if him and I have something similar or anything like that? No, you know, it's, it's a sign of the time, I think. We didn't talk about it, and I will say about, Brian, he was a, a very quiet guy in the dressing room. Uh, very fun, easygoing. You know, he was uh, easy to talk to, but very quiet. He didn't. He wasn't a rah-rah guy, and he went about his business in his own way. And on the ice, you said it very well there. Like as a for his size, he was a big guy. He could. He was so swift on his skates. He could skate like the wind. He could see the ice, tremendous skill. And um, But off the ice, uh, yeah, he was quiet and really kind of kept to himself. And uh, that was a very unfortunate, you know, he, he definitely struggled with his own demons. And But, but as far as him and I, I know I didn't have uh, any idea that he might have been suffering from anxiety or anything like that. We, that's something we wouldn't have talked about back in those days. I feel like now there's so much more talk about it. So back then, it was never an item or a discussion. You couldn't go to anybody. So how did you deal with your anxiety and and yeah. kind of as you as you're coming up? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Like I I have uh, there's a line in my book Shattered Ice where I'm at tra- my first day at training at camp in Kingston with my billets. They, uh, I've got tryouts starting the next morning. They take me to my bedroom. I close the door. I'm staring at my luggage, and the the I'm overwhelmed by the whole situation. And I start to feel anxious and a bit panicky and weepy, and tears form in my eyes. And what I say in the book is, instantly on cue, the other part of my mind says to me, "Hey, you're here to play hockey." And I in the book I say, like from the movie A League of Their Own. Tom Hanks says, are you crying? Are you crying? <laughs> He's like, there's no crying in baseball. And then in my mind, I'm thinking, well, there's no crying in baseball. There's definitely no crying in hockey. So you, you, we learn to compartmentalize and you learn to focus on the next shift, the next game, whatever's coming on your plate. And you set all your personal feelings aside. Um, there's one other line in my book that I talked recently to someone else about where I have a, a mon- I talk about a mantra I had for myself, which, which wasn't a healthy one, but it was eat the pain. And where eat the pain came from was my rookie year in Kingston. The movie Platoon was popular and Charlie Sheen and Tom Berenger. And they're on their first uh, patrol. Charlie Sheen is his character and they get ambushed. And one of the soldiers is, severely wounded and he's screaming and he's in a lot of pain and Tom Berenger's character comes over and he puts his hand over the soldier's mouth and he says eat the pain eat the pain and and within seconds that soldier for the betterment of the team and the group the platoon he stops screaming because they don't want to give up the position and I I say that became my own personal mantra from the movie like I said it's not a healthy one but it's how I help get myself through tough times. You had to bury it down and, and just keep grinding. It yes. Like. And, and then, and what I've learned through going to therapy is, which is a good lesson for everybody. If you suppress those feelings, eventually over time, they will come back to haunt you because what my therapist said to me is we have 
cupboards inside our body and you can put so many glass jars on those cupboards and eventually all the, the trauma and glass jars, there's no more room and the, they start to crash to the floor and then you either implode, which is self-harm, you explode, you hurt others or you get sick. And in my case, I got sick to the point where my body started to swell and I couldn't get out of bed. Hmm. It was hmm. a tough time. Uh, it, it sounds like it. I, I guess, though, moving on to some better times, <laughs> you graduate from Kingston. You're drafted by the Washington Capitals fourth overall or 20, uh, in the second round, 40th overall. And you report to Bimington for three games. Let's talk about your transition from playing in the American Hockey League to the OHL. The OHL was was playing against boys. Now you're playing against men. How was that transition for you? It was tough. And uh, I'll tell you a funny story, too, from my, that's in my book. Uh, Jack Button, who was the director of player personnel recruitment for the Capitals and kind of like assistant GM, he looked after a lot of the junior guys in those days. And I respected Jack greatly. Um, I leaned on him heavily after I was drafted as far as one-on-one. Like, I would ask him questions all the time. And to his credit, he always took the time to listen and answer my question. Hurdy's so very we well-respected. Hurdy's a really well-respected guy. Absolutely. And I leaned heavily on him. I call him a mentor just because, I again, with the anxiety, I was always looking for someone to that I could trust to mm-hmm. confide in. And he... He early in my career at the Capitals, he was the that's the guy. He was the guy. So anyway, I call him after the Kingston season ended. He's they phoned and said, Jack phoned and said, "You're going to Binghamton. I need you to show up. You're playing tonight against Baltimore." As a as it turned out, when the before the when the when the Penguin actually I think they're an independent. But um, so I said to Jack, "How do I get there?" And he said get a map. So the, me- <laughs> the message was loud and clear to me that you're a professional now. You're not a junior hockey player. And it's time to, along with being a professional, comes a little more expectation. And so I, I did get to Binghamton. I played that night against Baltimore, played three games. Um, definitely an adjustment. The guys are bigger. They're stronger. In a lot of cases, they're, they're veterans. So they've been in the, they've been in the pro ranks for a while. And, they're very crafty, so you're not playing. You're not playing against boys now. You're playing against men. So it was a it was a good experience. I was there about three, six weeks down the season, and then you go home that summer. And I'm assuming you maybe spent some time in Washington, or or did they have the training camps? I guess I should ask that. Now we have the rookie camps. We have the the workouts and everything. Was that even a thing back then? They didn't have the on ice rookie camps, which are very popular today. But they did bring the rookies down for some fitness testing and some physicals and and a meet and greet. I talk about that in my book, too. Um, the Capitals, it's one of my favorite stories in the book. The Capitals showed us. So we came down after the draft and they show us the Capitol Center. And we went out for dinner in a nice restaurant in D.C. with Mr. Poyle and Brian, Coach Brian Murray and the staff. And they showed us in the afternoon a video which I compare to Don Cherry's Rock'em Sock'em Pop. <laughs> but it was the Capitals version. So we had, I, I, there's a couple of vivid memories I have. From. One is Bobby Carpenter scoring on a slap shot from just inside the blue line, top corner. Um, the other one, two are Bobby Gould scoring on a nice drive to the net. And then Scott Stevens against the Flyers, um, just smashing someone's head with his, <laughs> in a fight behind the net. So, but I remember feeling the adrenaline instantly flowing in this 
football. We were watching this as a group together in a meeting room. Yeah, it was it was fun, but we didn't they didn't we didn't have to go on the ice back then when we came down in the summer. It was more just uh, training and fitness testing. So you get down here, and I say here because I'm actually right outside Washington D.C. right now. So you come down here and and you report to Baltimore, and for me this is special. As everybody knows, I'm a Caps guy. I mean, this was my time. I remember watching, and so they were affiliated. They moved from Bimington to Baltimore. And you're playing in the city of Baltimore. What's Baltimore like in the 80s? I mean, were you living there or were you living outside of Baltimore? What was the setup? Uh, I lived in Columbia, which is about 20 minutes south of Baltimore. Some of the other guys lived in Laurel, Maryland, and Ellicott City. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the majority of, of us lived in Columbia because we practiced at the Columbia Arena that year, actually for the next two years. And being so close to the Capitals, did you have a lot of interaction with the Caps? Absolutely. And that's one thing I always liked about the uh the baltimore washington connection being so close to them because through mr Poyle and the organization the, the skipjacks had it was an open door for us we were in we were welcome to any home game so um if we wanted to come watch and it was you know to keep you part of the organization a little close to the actions watch the goings on it was always an open door down there for us and i remember uh my second year watching yarmir yager's first game in the NHL against and it was against the Caps I think he was drafted fourth or fifth overall that previous summer and he was a gangly 18 year old and I remember thinking like there's a lot of talk about him my roommate Steve Malte and I went down there just to see him play and when I could too I always went to see Gretzky and Lemieux play just because there's it's Gretzky and Lemieux yeah I mean exactly so if Pittsburgh was in town or if Gretzky was in town I would try to get down there if we were free were you a big fan of hockey in general is it something that you still or not still I'm sure to this day you do but is it something that you watched in your free time did you really live it at that time yeah that's a good question I, I you still paid attention closely so you might read the papers and see what's going on in the NHL and the AHL. Back then, the IHL as well was around. So, we, yeah, I would definitely pay attention. I'm a big fan of the hockey news. So if the hockey news came out, um, you'd pick it up or you'd pick it up a magazine. Yeah, paid attention for sure, but you're still, more importantly, focusing on your own team and, and yourself and trying to get to the next level. So you're living in Columbia, you're playing in Baltimore. The AHL was a bus league back then. It's still a bus league. What were these road trips like? I can only imagine having to drive up north to New England when in January when there's you know a foot of snow on the yeah. ground. What was the travel like in the American League back then? The travel for us was could be challenging. We were the most southern team in the league at that time in Baltimore. So We had Rochester and Newmarket. The Toronto Maple Leafs were in Newmarket, Ontario, and they those two teams were in our division. So Rochester is about eight hours, Newmarket about ten, ten, eleven. So a lot of times it was a grind because you'd play three and three nights is pretty much the way it works in the minors, and I talk about that in my book too. So you might play. Sometimes we'd play at home Friday night. We might drive eight hours to Rochester play them Saturday night and then back to Baltimore for a Sunday night home game. So you were arriving at 5 a.m. wherever you were going usually before the game the next day. And sleep was tough on the bus and and uh, which <laughs> what little of it you could get. I was going to say, if you could even get any. I mean, you've got yeah. a group of 20 guys on a bus. For one, it probably smells awful. Two, <laughs> there's always somebody who's not sleeping. So Absolutely. I can't even be- imagine how difficult that was. 
movies, card games, uh, fast food, of course, after games on the bus. Um, that was a fun time. I mean, that's where you build a lot of the team camaraderie when you're when you're that close to these players for your teammates for eight months at a time. That's when you develop a lot of that camaraderie guys talk about where you really are family. You have to be and like families, not everybody gets along all the time. But at the end of the day, you're in it for each other and you support each other and get yourselves through those tough times. And you're working through a common goal and the coaching staff's leading the way. And it's a it is a lot of fun. I mean, it's I'm just talking about some of the grind of it all. But at the end of the day, it really is a lot of fun. What were some of the fun times that you remember? Is there anything that sticks out? Sure. Um, I, I say uh, when Doug McLean came to uh, down in uh, I call another chapter in my book is called musical coaches. So I'll just briefly give you. So Brian Murray was fired by Mr. Poyle. He was replaced by his brother, Terry, who was a coach of the Skipjack, which is crazy in itself. Yeah. It's an amazing story. That's why it's another one of my favorite stories in my book. Yeah. Like I don't know if it's ever happened, but if <laughs> we're a brother replaced a brother on a professional sports team. But um, so anyway, Doug McLean who was with Brian ends up in Baltimore and that season, we uh, we played the Sherbrooke Canadians at the Montreal Forum. It's a neutral site game, but a home game for Sherbrooke. And I had never skated on the Forum ice. And it was just a, a thrill to play in the Montreal Forum and to actually have my blades on that ice, on that ice surface where so many great historic players and games were played. Oh, that was a great memory. God, goosebumps just hearing it. We lost a, a nail-biting 2-1 game, I remember, but uh, it was very, they were the mm. top team in the Northern Division. and Yeah, it was a very good experience. Another one, uh, <laughs> well, not, while the, now that we're on the story of Doug McLean, I might as well tell one more memorable Doug McLean story. Please. And it's also, yeah, it's also in my book. Um, so that year, round one, we played the Adirondack Red Wings, who were coached by Barry Melrose at the time. And we had them on the ropes at the end of the series, we were the underdogs going into it. And we had him on the ropes at home and Barry Melrose kind of lost his temper with Doug and the benches were side by side. So he was giving it to Doug pretty good through the uh, small pane of glass separating the benches. And he started pounding on it and enough that it dislodged the glass. Oh and boy. So uh, Doug, of course, all the teams came over to to get involved both teams came over the fans behind the benches were going bananas banging on the glass trying to <laughs> trying to infuriate Barry Melrose and Doug was just giving it right back to him like you can imagine when coaches start yelling in playoffs everybody usually pays attention when they're going at each other and uh the referee was Lance Roberts and he tossed Barry Melrose out of the game and we ended up winning the game and the series and the arena went crazy because Baltimore hadn't seen a playoff win in several years. And that was the season. I think you guys would go pretty far in the playoffs, at least uh, to the second or third round, wasn't it? Yeah, we, we we lost in the semifinals to the Rochester Americans, who were led by Mike Donnelly and Donald Odette. And uh, a hard-fought series. It went six games. A pivotal game that I remember was game five. We lost in overtime in Rochester, and then they they finished the series at, in Baltimore in game six. But that team was deep in Baltimore. We had a very talented roster. With I mean, Our power play was Mike Richard, Alfie Turcott, and Steve Malte. And we had Chris Felix on defense and Kent Painter. And we had 
it was a good hockey team. We had Bob Mason and Jim Rivnock in net. And we could have won, you know, we could have won the whole thing, but Rochester was the better team in that series. But that team could have won a Calder Cup. And it would have been really exciting. Oh, it was a loaded team. You also had Nick Kiprios, Bill Holder, Rob Murray, so many guys that would go yeah. on to, to play in the NHL. Former first overall pick, Doug Wickenheiser. And this team fascinates me because, and this is a selfish question I'm going to ask next. Uh, there are a couple guys that played in this organization that I can't figure out why they didn't make it. And I want to, I'm, I'm kind of curious if you had any experience with them and it doesn't look like they played on this roster, but I know you played with them and that was two first round picks, one being Reggie Savage and the other one being Jeff Greenlaw. What can yeah, you I put, share with people about those two players? Jeff Greenlaw was drafted the same year as me in the first round. Uh, we were both left wingers. He was coming from the Canadian national team under coach Dave King. So he was playing some high level hockey. I think in his case, he was a big, strong guy, uh, arguably the fastest skater in the organization in a straight line. Wow. Yeah. He, and with, to go with his six foot two, 225 pound body, it was really remarkable to see how fast he was from blue, like goal line to goal line. There weren't many faster than him. If I think he was the fastest skater on the, but you know some may argue, but he was right there. And um, you know he he was plagued by injuries, so that's a tough thing to deal with. And I I know that from my own career, like you got to battle through the injuries, and there's trauma that goes with it. And there's there are stories about people who players who get through those things. But Jeff had uh, Greeny had a lot of injuries that really plagued him, and he could never get that full season in and. Um, yeah, so but he was a good hockey player for sure. All the tools. Reggie Savage, also a fast skater, uh, pure goal scorer. Now, his case, I didn't play with him as long. I only played one full season with him, but he was a pure goal scorer, um, right-handed shot. Or was he? Well, he played right wing. He might have lots of talent, uh, highly touted, first-round NHL pick. And um, that one, I, I don't know exactly why it didn't work out for him in the long run with the Capitals organization. But um, I don't think he played too many games after he left the Caps in the NHL either. So. He didn't. He ended up having a, a, a pretty much a, a storied journeyman career, I guess you could say, in several different leagues. And on this topic of the Washington Capitals, in the 90 season, you get recalled after playing several games and you get called up to finally make it to the NHL and, and, and get your opportunity. What was that feeling like for you to finally get the chance? Oh, it was a dream come true. I mean, you worked so hard for so many years. It was my third year in the minors and I knew I was close. The touring Russians had come by that season and we played Moscow Dynamo and I played that game for the Capitals a couple, a couple weeks before this and played well. And so it was a dream come true. First NHL game and it was in Detroit. Um, Jesus, we're back to Doug McLean again. I got another funny story about Doug McLean. Um, he ended up in Detroit that following season with Brian Murray. They were ended up <laughs> after they left the Capitals, they ended up in Detroit and I get called up in my first NHL games in Detroit against my former coaches. So Brian from Washington and Doug from just had him in Baltimore. You got to make sure you go to the right bench. Yeah, yeah, I do. And I guess I'll, I'll give you the short version of the story, which this is another classic story from my book. 
it's the the chapter is called the goon from baltimore but i'm, I'm skating around a warm-up i was very nervous of course I, most guys will tell you they're nervous in that first nhl game and i saw doug mclean on the visitors bench so i thought it would be a good strategy to maybe go talk to him and he'll give me some comforting words like congratulations way to go kid you made it and um, so I, I head towards the Detroit bench and we make eye contact and I can see he's going to say something. So I to kind of tune in and listen up. And he says, hey, Seth, I told Probert you're the goon called up from Baltimore. Oh, God. <laughs> well, that was Doug's kind of humor. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a gr- it's a great story. And um, I but at the time, I really didn't know what, <laughs> what whether he did or didn't. And then I. So to jump ahead, we go back to the dressing room, and t- Coach Terry Murray says, the starting lineup is uh, Hunter Seftel Drews. So I'm starting my first NHL game, which what a thrill that is. So I'm out on the blue line for the national anthem at the Joe Lewis Arena. So I look across the other blue lines. I want to know who I'm up against because I'm a left winger. And there he is, number 24, Probert. Just staring <laughs> so now, right at you. So now I'm thinking maybe he did tell him I'm the goon called up from Baltimore. And I wasn't a goon by any means. I played a physical game, but fighting wasn't on a forte of mine. And uh, <laughs> But anyway, long story short now is that I read Bob Probert's book years later. And unless you earned the right to fight him and you were a rookie, he wasn't going to give you the time of day. So I really had nothing to worry about. <laughs> but she didn't, didn't know, know that at the time. At the time. No, I didn't know it at the time when I was. <laughs> for a guy, it was a great game. For great a guy game, that's not a, f- a fighter, though, the Washington Capitals sure thought you did. Your next game was against the Flyers from the eighties. <laughs> yeah, in the Spectrum, that was a thrill too. Um, yeah, again, another classic rink playing in the old Philadelphia Spectrum. I I watched as a kid. I watched the game where the Flyers, where the Broad Street Bullies played the Russians, and they infamously left the ice. I remember watching that game and. And the famous call, he was from Bob Cole, they're leaving, they're going home. But uh, There's so much aura behind that arena. We lost that game uh, to the Flyers, and but it was great playing there. I loved it. You end up getting a couple games at home. What was it like in the Cap Center? I hear that building was so different. Actually, from my experience as a young kid going to that building, it was different. What was it like playing at home? I love playing in the Cap Center. It was a very uh, noisy crowd and uh, enthusiastic crowd, but as far as the two games I played, I'll give you a special story. Um, I have a chapter in the book also called Operation Desert Storm. And just as the timing of this all was, I happened to be there. We played the Islanders on a Sunday afternoon. Operation, the Gulf War had just started. Yep. And Operation Desert Storm was on everybody's mind. And they had a pregame ceremony for the tr- the branches of the U.S. military and they played the Lee Greenwood song, um, Proud to be an American. I'm not sure if that's the exact title of it. Mm-hmm. but uh, the, And then they followed that up with the Star Spangled Banner, and it's the loudest I've ever heard an arena in my life. I had goosebumps. Um, I couldn't hear the coaches behind me yelling out instructions. It was that loud in the arena. And it was a, tu- it was a turbulent time in – in the, in the country and even more so in the capital city. And, and so it was just an electric atmosphere. We won, we won that game five, four in overtime. Kelly Miller scored the winning goal and uh, just blew the roof off the arena. It was just a incredible memory that I will never forget. 
And unfortunately, that would be your last game with the Washington Capitals. You you go back to Baltimore, you finish out the year, and then you spend another year in Baltimore, and then it kind of ends. What ended up happening? Uh, at the end of that season, the 90-91 season, uh, and torn ACL that had plagued me since I was 18, completely uh, disintegrated on me and needed to be surgically repaired. So I met with... Uh, Jack Button, and we decided that surgery was going to be the next course of action. So, but that was the unfortunate part is I was playing my best hockey in my career, and I needed this surgery because my knee was so unstable. Mm. I tore it when I was 18 back in junior, and I played with a brace. So, I had surgery, I had nine months of rehab, and I, you know, you just can't control these things. I came back, played 18 games in Baltimore after my nine month rehab. It wasn't going well. And then I tore just bad luck. I tore my right right ACL in the other leg, and that was a devastating, traumatic blow. And you know, you talk about there's trauma that comes with injuries, and I don't think, as far as mental health too, like we don't. I don't think we give enough credit to that, or we don't allow players avenues to deal with the trauma that injuries might cause them. Even though the physical trauma will heal, but there's mental trauma that comes with that. So I, again, didn't have it repaired. I tried to go back to training camp the following season. It was still my new injury and my other right leg was still unstable, giving me a lot of trouble. And that's when I started to spiral kind of out of control mentally, just questioning where I was, what, what was I doing decisions made and that just compounds on itself. And that's where the anxiety and panic really started to strike me hard. I know that it's really difficult for you to talk about now, especially because this was kind of the end of your career, but for players out there or for people out there that have the anxiety and have the depression, can you, or maybe they don't know they have it. Can you talk about kind of what you went through over the next few years? Cause I know I'd imagine life after hockey, which is all you'd known for so long now. I mean, what's next? Yeah, it was very challenging. Um, you lose your identity. I'd say for, I think all players after they've stopped playing go through that. Your identity as a hockey player and an athlete, and that's how people look up to you and, and see you, and you end up kind of seeing yourself through that lens. And when it's over, it's so abrupt. I don't. Most of us aren't prepared for it. Not everybody's going to fall into the plum job, maybe in, in an organization as a scout or a coach or right. – or even outside of work, you get something where you fall right into it. For many, it's re, uh, recreating yourself and um, maybe educating yourself, and that's difficult. The biggest thing you got to do is talk to people. You cannot – so the biggest mistake I made is I internalized everything. I didn't share my feelings with anyone, and that's those glass jars again just piling up inside my body, inside my brain – you go through a lot of self-loathing, um, intrusive thoughts, especially when you're suffering from mental health. And mm-hmm. those things just build and build and beat you down. And then, unfortunately, over time, it can be very destructive. So you have to you have to share with your family. I never shared with any of my family members. Big mistake. My wife always knew I was needed help, and she encouraged me to get help, but we didn't. 
she didn't know what I was feeling. I didn't want to like, I'm a male, I'm a hockey player. I'm not going to tell you I'm good. I'll soldier on, I'll make this work. But really I was screaming inside. I was screaming for help. And I feel like in hockey, it's such a, I don't want to use the word barbaric, but manly attitude in the locker room and in the sport that it's even harder for people with mental issues to come out. What advice Absolutely. would you give a player now if, if they're struggling? To seek help, don't to at, talk to your family members, first of all, and then seek outside interventions. And there's so much help out there. That's what I learned, which I didn't understand until I started asking for help myself. So first I went to my medical practitioner. In my case, I was given medication that helps me. I went to see a psychotherapist. That was a, an amazing experience just to dig deep into my feelings and get get those the baggage out uh i saw a, i saw a psychiatrist which helped me with cognitive behavior therapy another way to deal with my anxiety and panic my anxiety and panic is never going to go away but because i went to see uh someone about cognitive behavior therapy now i have more tools in the toolbox and then the last one for me i went to see a natural path i really needed to get my gut and my nutrition in order like my my nutrition wasn't good my uh gut biome wasn't good so because that was struggling as well it just that feeds your brain and if your brain's not getting what it needs that's just another way you get dragged down so i use this whole holistic approach to to get me back on track and i've come a long way in the last two years like i said it's not it's never gone but at least i i know how to acknowledge it now and I have the support of my family and my the medical kind of team, I call it, to uh, get me through the rough spots. The book has come out. It's available on Amazon. I haven't read it yet, but from some of the stories you've told me, I can't wait to read it. Tell people about where they can get it. I know you're doing some stuff locally. Can you fill people in on that? Yeah, it's available in the United States right now on Amazon.com. In Canada, Amazon.ca. Uh, just recently... In Waterloo, Ontario at Wordsworth Books and Stratford, Ontario at Fanfare Books. They're both uh, both good hockey cities. And um, I'll be expanding that soon. I'll tell you another interesting tidbit uh, just via Amazon. I had a, per- uh, a fellow purchase the book through Amazon Australia. And another uh, former fan of mine or friend of mine from Kingston, who's now living in New Zealand, purchased it through Amazon uh, Australia. <laughs> so the so story really, really is getting all over the world. Yeah, it really is. Um, I just sent a copy. The, the foreword is written by Doug McLean. Um, I went to see him in March and said I'd be honored. Um, he is my favorite coach. Every coach you play for gives you something that you can take with you and inspire you. But Doug and I really connected and I just had a special relationship with him, probably because he has a master's degree in psychology. And with what I dealt with, there was probably a connection there that I wasn't even aware of when I was a young guy. But I asked him if he'd write the foreword, and he did. And I just sent him his copy. So my book arrived on Friday on Prince Edward Island, the home of Doug McLean. He proudly is a Prince Edward Islander. And uh, yeah, it's been very exciting. (sighs) 
I just love that story about Bob Probert. It, it made my day when I heard it. I mean, just how great is that? You go over to say hey to your coach. He goes, hey, by the way, Probert knows you're coming at him. He's just staring at you. It's great. It's great. Want to thank Steve for coming on. Really enjoyed chatting with him. Don't forget the book is available on Amazon. It's called Shattered Ice by Steve Seftel. You can also hit him up on social media. I know he's active on Facebook and then he's on Twitter at SL Seftel. S-L-S-E-F-T-E-L. So be sure to follow him on social media and check out the book. I I ordered my copy. I haven't been able to, unfortunately, read it yet, but it's on the way uh, with Amazon and and I can't wait to, to check it out. In the meantime, that's it for now. I'll see you guys when I see you. If I don't have another episode between now and the first week of October, enjoy the rest of your summer, but I can't wait to start podcasting with everybody again and start releasing interviews. Um, And also, on a side note, I I can't believe how many people are listening to the podcast in the prior episodes, uh, which are available at Snapshots in Hockey History and on iTunes. And I, I can't uh, thank you guys enough for for the feedback and um, how great it's been. When I started doing this, I didn't really think it would kind of do as well as it has. So thank you guys for telling your friends and sharing on social media. I can't thank you guys enough. And and if you haven't, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. I can't tell you how much that really helps spread the word of the podcast. And, and also sharing just on social media is, is a huge help. So thank you guys. Anyways, I hope this filled your hockey fix for at least a little while. We'll see everyone again the first week of October. Make it a great day.